Well, three weeks ago, I spoke to you on the man with a great attitude, Daniel. Last week, I spoke on the man with a great attitude, Joseph. And today, it's the man with a great attitude, guess who? Caleb. And you will find his story in Joshua chapter 14 in your Bible. Turn there with me, if you will, please. Joshua 14, and we'll read God's Word together. Stand with me, if you will. We'll begin the reading in Joshua chapter 14 and verse number 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning me and you in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Look at that phrase. My brethren, the people that went with me drained away the courage of the people. But I fully or wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet hath trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because, second time it's mentioned, thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old, eighty-five. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, when I was 40, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain. What a great phrase. I'm 85 years old, but I still have my dreams. I still have my objectives and my goals. Give me this mountain, Joshua the one that the Lord spake about in that day. For you heard in the day how the Anakims, that's the tribe of giants, were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I will be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron or Hebron, for an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Caleb was born in Egypt while still they were all slaves there in that land of bondage. 
And no doubt Caleb remembered the day that they went through the Red Sea when God opened up the waters and the people walked through on dry ground. He crossed over into the wilderness, and he was there in all those early events when Moses smote the rock and the water came out, when the manna became the food that they lived on throughout the years, and God sent the quails, and every experience that they had as a nation, Caleb had lived through. He ultimately became the leader of the tribe of Judah, the largest of the tribes. So we know that he was a respected man. He was a great leader to have held that position. And then came the day that Moses said, I'm going to send 12 spies into the land, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. I'm going to send those spies out. They're going to look over the land. They're going to tell us where the strongholds are, where the enemies are, and so on. And then they're going to come back and report, and we're going to go in and take the land that God promised to Abraham 450 years ago or so. And so the spies went out, and they came back. And I want you to turn quickly to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, and I want you to hold now these two passages in your Bible throughout the rest of the message because I'm going to be flipping back and forth between them, okay? Numbers 13 in your Bible and the book of Joshua 14, 13 and 14, Numbers 13. And as you turn there, I'll remind you that Caleb then and the, 12, the other 11 spies went into the land and they came back and they reported on their findings. And all 12 of the men, I presume, had an opportunity to speak. In chapter 13 of Numbers and in verse number 28, we read this. Numbers 13, 28. Nevertheless, the, the spies said, the people that are strong are strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled, and they're very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak, that was a tribe of giants. We saw them there. And we'll skip down to verse number 30. And while the, this negative report is being given by 10 of the spies, Caleb comes up and he interrupts. He breaks in. And in verse 30, he stills the people before Moses. And he said... Let us go up at once and possess the land, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him, the other ten men beside him and Joshua said, we are not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched under the children of Israel. Can you see the great crowd of people, the multitudes of the nation standing breathlessly waiting to hear this report from these spies? Joshua and Caleb say, let's go up right now. We'll take the land. And the other 10 said, oh, we can't do that. The walls are up to heaven. There are giants there. The cities are great. They're too strong for us. And they said in verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought up this evil report of the land that they had searched under the children of Israel. 
And they said again, the land through which we have gone to search is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Everybody up there is a giant. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. Underline that in your Bible. We were in our own sight like grasshoppers. We're little, weak, tiny folks compared to the giants. And so we were in their sight. They looked at us in that way too. And so we have the majority report. We can't go up there. The walls are too high. The giants are too big. And we have the minority report. Two men. We can go up. If the Lord is with us, it's time that we go and claim our possession. It's time we go and receive what God has already promised to us. Well, what happened? The people sided with the majority. The majority is usually wrong, aren't they? Particularly when it comes to the things of God. The majority is almost always wrong. And if you're going to follow the Lord, you're going to learn what it's like to be a part of a minority. And so the people sided with the majority. They rebelled. Look in chapter 14, verse 1. All the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and wept that night. And they began to murmur against Moses and Aaron. They began to complain and murmur against the leadership that God had given to them. And before it's over, they are ready to stone Joshua and Caleb and Moses. And were it not for the very direct interference by Almighty God coming that day, they would have, in fact, stoned Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and the leadership at that time. And God said, okay, that's enough. If you're not willing to do what I've told you I will do for you, if you're not willing to go up there and take the land that I've already given to you, then I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And he brought judgment that day. And in fact, many of the people lost their lives. Now, here's the bottom line. The book of Numbers said that there were 603,000 550 fighting men, 603,550 fighting men in the nation of Israel. God said, of all of you men, only two of you will ever set your foot in the promised land. It will be Joshua and it'll be Caleb. And the other 603,548 of you, your bones will perish in the wilderness because of your unbelief, because of your negative attitude. And now they've been in the land for about five years, wandering, or they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they've been in the land for five years. And Caleb is standing there in chapter 14 of Joshua, and Joshua is apportioning the land. He's saying, okay, I'm going to give this land over here in this certain area to the tribe of Benjamin, for example. We're going to give the land over here to the tribe of Ephraim, and we're going to give the land over here to the tribe of Judah. And Joshua interrupts again. Hold on, Moses. Do you remember way back there 45 years ago 
They promised me that mountain up there where Hebron sits. God said, every place that the sole of your foot walks upon, you can have that for an inheritance. I was the spy who went up there and spied out that mountain and that city, and I'm here to claim my possession. I am here to take that mountain. I want my mountain. And Joshua, for a few moments, I guess, pondered it, remembered the story, and said, okay, I'm going to give you that mountain. It's yours. You can have it and pass it on to your children for their inheritance. The man with the great attitude, Caleb. I call him the old gray-haired warrior. The gray-haired warrior. The man who never stopped dreaming and who always was possessing his possessions. What was the difference in Caleb and Joshua and every other man in that nation at that time? What was the difference in him and every other man in Israel? Look, Numbers chapter 14 and uh, verse number 24. Numbers 14 and 24, and you'll find the difference spoken by God himself to Joshua. He said, my servant Caleb, because he has another spirit, circle that word spirit, it's attitude. Caleb has a different attitude than the rest of the people in this country. And because he hath followed me fully, him I will bring into the land where into we went, and his seed shall possess it. The difference in Caleb and everybody else was attitude, the way his spirit communicated with other people. I want you to notice three things this morning with, uh, with me about Caleb. Number one, his faith never wavered. His faith never wavered. Now, what was the foundation of his great faith? All those years, his faith never wavered. He never varied. He always was holding on to the promises of God. In Joshua chapter 14 and verse number 12, we find that the basis of his faith was the Word of God. He said, the, war, the Lord spoken to me. It was the Lord who told me I could have that mountain, that everywhere that my foot tread, there I would be able to possess that part of the land. And so the foundation of Caleb's faith was the Word of God itself. Through the years here, I have used a definition of faith that I learned probably when uh, 1972 or 3, I was in a hotel in Dallas, Texas, working with a group of other preachers, and we were writing a Sunday school curriculum. And I was a very young guy. I was the youngest guy in the room. And we spent about two days working on one thing, the definition of faith. What is faith? Because it's sort of spiritual. It's kind of ethereal. How do you define faith? Because people use it all the time. They talk about my faith. They talk about, uh, they, they use it in 40 different ways, and so I don't want to get sidetracked. And we came up with this definition of faith, and I think it's the best definition of faith I've ever read or studied or heard. I hope you'll write it down. It's real simple. Faith is hearing God's Word. 
That's the first part of it. You see, without God's Word, there's no basis for faith. It's just a wish. It's just a dream. You have to have a foundation for your faith. Faith is hearing God's Word. But secondly, it is not only hearing God's Word. Everybody in here is hearing God's Word today. Do we believe God's Word? So faith is hearing God's Word. Number two, faith is believing God's Word. Number three, faith is acting on God's Word. You see, there is an action component to faith. Faith would mean nothing if you didn't act on it. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went to a country where he had never been. By faith, Daniel went into the lion's den. All of the exploits of the great men and women of the Old Testament were predicated upon the fact they heard the Word of God, they believed the Word of God, they acted upon the Word of God, and the fourth component of faith is then we leave it up to the Lord. Faith is hearing God's Word, believing God's Word, acting on God's Word, and then leaving it up to Him, resting in God's Word, if you want to say it that way. And that's exactly what old Caleb did. That it defines his faith so beautifully. The foundation of his good attitude was his rock-solid belief he had heard what God had said. You can have the land. That you, you can possess the land. He believed that. He acted upon that, and then he left the rest up to God. He trusted and believed in, in that. And that ought to be our attitude today. I'm preaching today to help people strengthen and encourage and identify and define and understand the very idea of faith as the foundation of the right attitude toward the Lord and toward His work. And what is an attitude of faith? Here's what an attitude of faith is. It simply is, Lord, now I've read your word here. I receive it by faith. I don't look for a sign. I don't have to have a feeling. I don't ask for a feeling. I stand on your word, and that settles it. That's faith. See, you have so many people in America running around looking for an experience to confirm what God has already said. I don't need a feeling. Faith is based upon hearing the Word of God, believing the Word of God, acting on the Word of God, and resting in the Word of God after I've heard it. That is faith in the biblical sense of the Word. Now, what is the source of all faith then? The source of all faith, my faith, your faith, Caleb's faith. If it's true biblical faith, the source of it is the Word of God. Listen to this verse, Romans 10 and 17. Faith cometh by what? Hearing the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Apart from the Word of God, you have no basis for faith. All you have is a want to, a hope so, a maybe so, a dream, a goal, a vision. But you have no basis to step out and do anything for God apart from His Word. Faith is hearing the Word, believing the Word, acting on the Word, and then resting on the Word of God, leaving the rest, leaving the results up to Him. Now, here's the thing about faith, then. If you separate it from God's Word, 
then what's going to happen is you're going to not nourish your faith, and like anything else that's not nourished, it's going to become weak. You see, when you stop, when you cease practicing the Christian, the basic Christian doctrines, when you cease having your devotional time, your faith will grow weak. When, you, when your church attendance starts to decline, your faith is going to be affected. Somebody comes to me and says, well, pastor, uh, you know, um, my faith is, is, is real weak. And I say to them, uh, you having your devotions every day? You beginning the day with the Bible in your lap? Well, no, no, you know, I have to, I have to start early. I, I don't have time for that. I miss a lot. Well, let me ask you this. Um, how often are you coming to church? Well, you know, we try to get there on Sunday morning if nothing else comes up. I said, if I ate one meal a week, I'd be wobbly, wouldn't I? I'd be pretty weak. You've got to feed your faith every day. You've got to be in God's house every time you can. For the life of me, I don't understand why in a culture that is so opposed to us today, we're cutting back on the number of services we have in churches. Does that make any sense? We're going to build stronger people by canceling Sunday night. I mean, you ought to leave your brain to the Smithsonian on that one. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, if you want strong faith, you must feed your faith. And the Word of God is the foundation of faith, ladies and gentlemen. We have this downward spiral in America. We pull the Bible out of the schools. People are too busy to study it. They're too busy to go to church. Amen, Brother Bill. There's a major decline in morality across the country, and we wonder why. Well, because our faith is weak. Our faith is weak. You cannot separate the quality of a person's faith from their exposure to the Word of God. You cannot do it. Now, that's the source of faith, the Word of God. And what is the evidence of faith? The evidence of faith is obedience. You see, that's why I love that definition. Faith is hearing the Word of God, believing the Word of God, and it's obeying the Word of God. Look in verse number 8 there, and it says that he wholly followed the Lord. Look in verse 9, it says he wholly followed the Lord. In verse 14, it says he wholly followed the Lord. Over and over and over, six times in the accounts about Caleb, six times it says he wholly followed the Lord. Let me tell you what that phrase means. If you'll study that phrase, it means to close the gap, to close the gap. In other words, he was closing the gap between himself and the Lord. He wanted to get closer. The whole idea, of that is, the whole idea is to get as close as possible to the Lord, to live in such a manner that he could, he could walk in real harmony and real communion to close the gap between himself and the Lord, to wholly follow, to be close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Caleb, every inch, every ounce, every nerve, every fiber of his being belonged to Almighty God. And so everybody else saw the giants. They saw themselves as grasshoppers. Caleb saw 
God and the giants as grasshoppers. What a difference. Attitude, attitude makes all the difference, doesn't it? The way that I perceive reality, my attitude. Everyone else was thinking comfort. We can't go up there. Caleb was thinking victory. Everyone else believed their doubts and doubted their beliefs. Did you ever do that? Everyone else was doubting their beliefs and believing their doubts. What was Caleb doing? He was believing his beliefs and doubting his doubts. Boy, this was an interesting guy. He had supreme confidence and faith in the Lord. Let's go up at once, he says. His attitude was can do. His slogan was the difficult we'll do right now and the impossible will take just a little bit longer. His theme song was the impossible dream. And not once did he ever give mental assent to the possibility of defeat. Not once. He lived in victory, ladies and gentlemen. You know, Caleb was like the bumblebee. I read the other day that all the aeronautical and aerodynamics of uh, engineering says that a a bumblebee can't fly. He doesn't have enough surface on his wings. His body is built in the wrong shape. His body is too heavy for the amount of wingspan that he has. And so, therefore, some aerodynamic engineer says a bumblebee can't fly. The only problem is nobody told the bumblebee. The bumblebee can fly, obviously. And the whole world is telling you today, giving you negative messages here today about your fa- what we can do for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, don't you believe them? This old gray-haired warrior here, old Caleb, man, this guy said, I want that mountain. I may be 85, but I still want to fulfill that dream. I want to leave that mountain to my children, to my inheritance. His faith never wavered. Number two, his strength never weakened. His strength never weakened. Verse 11, I am as strong today as the day that Moses sent me. I'm as strong today as the day that Moses sent me out to go spy the land. For 45 years, he had carried that vision. It had captured his heart, and he had fallen in love with that place once he'd seen it. And he said, I'm just as strong as I ever was because his strength was from the Lord. Psalm 46.1, that's a favorite, isn't it? And it begins by saying, God is our refuge and our strength. God is my strength. That was the source of Caleb's strength. Let me say something to our seniors, since I'm one of us. Let me say something to the seniors here. I've watched through the years ministering to people all these decades of my own life and visiting and talking to people. You know, some people grow old and they grow stronger. And some people grow old and they grow weak and they get very, very negative. I'm sure praying that the Lord will help me with that. And Caleb is a reminder 
of the right attitude in old age. General Douglas MacArthur was the supreme Allied commander, if you remember, in World War II. He went over there and took command of that island when it had been bombed and everything was in such uh, upheaval. And it was General MacArthur who largely began to put things back together. And, and the Japanese people, instead of hating him, came to almost revere him as a, a demigod before it was over. MacArthur had a little poem framed, they say, and he had it on his wall in his office. And he quoted it in his speeches so much that it became known as MacArthur's Credo, General MacArthur's Credo. It's called the Youth Poem. Now, at that time, he was in his 70s, and here's what he said. Youth is not a time of life. It is a state of mind. It is a temper of the will, a quality of the imagination, a vigor of the emotions. Nobody grows old by merely living a number of years. Years wrinkle the skin, but to give up enthusiasm wrinkles the soul. And whether you are 16 or 70, there is in every being's heart the love of wonder the sweet amazement at the stars and star-like things and thoughts. You are as young as your faith and as old as your doubt, as young as your confidence and as old as your fear, as young as your hope and as old as your despair. And when the wires are all down and the core of your heart is covered with the snows of pessimism and the ice of cynicism, then... You have grown old indeed, but so long as your heart receives messages of beauty and cheer and courage and grandeur and power from the earth, from other men, and from God, so long you are young. What a great credo to live by. And if you're not there yet, you will join us one day. And what a wonderful attitude to have about aging. Caleb had that. So his faith never wavered, not one time. His strength never weakened. And the third thing I want to tell you about him is his love never waned. His love never waned. Hebron still exists today. Today it's in the hands of the Palestinian movement. It's situated upon a mountain. It's one of the highest places in the Holy Land. And they say it is beautiful beyond description. It is sort of like a tropical paradise on the side or the top of a mountain. At that time, it was a powerful stronghold of the enemy. It was guarded by giants. In fact, it was guarded by three specific giants that are named here in the account. And it had a great history. It was the place where Abraham, God had spoken to him. It was the place where Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah to bury his wife, Sarah, when she passed away. Hebron was the place where then later Abram's body was placed. And then his son, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a sacred burial ground by the time that Caleb went to view it with all the patriarchs of Israel 
buried there in that, uh, in that beautiful place. And he, the word Hebron itself means fellowship. It means communion with God. And so when you understand the meaning of the place, Caleb said, I want that mountain. I want to be close to God. I want fellowship with God. I, I, I want to know him. I want to walk with the Lord. It was a striving after fellowship with God. And so he said, I want that mountain. Somebody has pointed out wisely, before we have a mountain in our hands, we better have it in our hearts. Before we have the mountain in our hands, we must have it in our hearts. We're not going to possess what we don't dream about and have a vision for and pray for, and love with all of our heart. Hebron would be the most difficult place in all the land of Israel to capture. The elevation would make it impervious to almost any kind of attack. And it was guarded by these powerful forces headed up by these three giants. And so if you were going to take Hebron, it would be victory, but it would be at a great cost, a heavy price great difficulty. But the love of that place had captured his heart as a young man. And the dream of one day possessing that as the reward for his going and spying out the land, it never left him. He never lost his dream. He said, I'm 85 years old, but I'm young enough to keep dreaming. I want that mountain. I want that place of fellowship and communion with Almighty God. And so he went and he conquered the giants, and he captured that place. Will you look with me, if you will, in chapter 14 of Joshua, in verse number 14, verse 13, rather. Joshua blessed him and gave to Caleb Hebron for an inheritance. And it therefore became the inheritance of Caleb because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. What a great story. He conquered those giants. He captured that mountain. Let me ask you a question. What are the giants that you face? What are the mountains you would like to have in your life? You see, mountains in the Bible always represent difficulties. Mountains in the Bible, always, when you read of a mountain, it represents a difficulty, a challenge, a problem. So some of you today are looking at mountains of health problems. Some of you may be looking at mountains of financial problems or relationship problems. Problems at work. Problems with your family or within the family. And I preached to a great audience like this, and every kind of problem you can imagine, no doubt, is represented here today. And so I preach on Caleb, the old gray-haired warrior, the man whose faith never wavered, the man whose strength never weakened, the man whose love never waned. And I do it to encourage and inspire and instruct you because Have you ever thought that God can truly take care of those problems that you're facing? That faith in God 
can help you be an overcomer, to be victorious. You don't just have to live in the shallows of defeat all your life. The Bible says that faith is the victory. It overcomes the world and all the problems that the world brings to us. FBT right now, our church faces some problems. And in about six weeks or so, we will be 49 years old. It's a different world than when we opened the doors out there at the old theater building or when we even moved into this building 25 or six, seven years ago. Totally different world. The last five years have been changed like I've never seen. And so we face some mountains here. The mountain of reaching secular people with the gospel when so few have any interest at all in serious Christianity They might like sort of a superficial for a few minutes every now and then type of Christianity, but to really live for the Lord, to take the plow in your hand and follow Jesus Christ in discipleship, are you kidding? We're trying to sell a product that right now is not in heavy demand, and we don't want to put the product on sale and cheapen it, do we? So we face a mountain here. How do you reach secular people in a world where Christianity is sort of out of vogue? We face the mountain of making disciples when people are satisfied with a Christianity that makes no demands upon them. And you can't make disciples without demands. Jesus said, before you begin to follow me, count the cost, because there will be a cost. And I'd say there's two kinds of Christianities in evangelical churches today. A cheapened version that's put on sale, and then there is an authentic version that the price hadn't been cut. The price can't be cut. We'll never have a sale. We'll never have a spiritual microwave where you can be instantly spiritual. And so that's a mountain for us. We face a mountain of keeping the faith when the moral absolutes in the country are all under attack. And how do we in a world of moral relativism hold on to moral absolutes? A world where everybody says, I have my own truth. I don't need your truth or Christian truth. I've got my own truth. We have some mountains here. Mountains like perhaps no generation since the Lord lived on the earth have ever faced when it comes to spiritual and and philosophical, uh, the, the philosophical areas of the Christian life. We really face some challenges in the Western world right now. And so I've been preaching to you about attitude. Because I think until our attitude is right, we're not going to take those mountains. The trend is for 49-year-old churches to sit back and kind of coasted on out. You know, we've got lots of resources, just kind of be at ease in Zion, huh? And yet there's more lost people in Florence right now than the day I came to town. Sir Francis Drake was an explorer. He lived in the 16th century, 1500s. He was one of those early, early, early explorers. 
And can you imagine the courage of a man to get on a little ship that wouldn't be as long as wouldn't be as long as from here to that back wall? The whole ship. And you get on it with a few sailors and you begin to sail around the world. No GPS, no computers, a compass. And that's about all. A little old wooden boat really was all it was. And this man got on it and sailed around the world and made some very, very important discoveries I don't have time to tell you about. Way back in the 1500s, he was English. And he knew God. And somewhere out there on the waves one night, he opened up a Bible. And God must have been dealing with his heart about some challenges that he had in his own life. And he wrote these words. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true, because we dreamed too little. When we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, O Lord, when with the abundance of things that we possess, we have lost our thirst for the water of life. Having fallen in love with life, that's America, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture out on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. We're losing sight of land we shall find stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength and courage and hope and love. Disturb us, Lord. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.